That one. Yes, good morning everyone. Bible reading this morning is from uh, Thessalonians, first book of Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, a Greek city, and we'll be reading from chapter 2, and we will be beginning at verse 17, and then we'll be reading chapter 3 as well. Uh, this is Paul's words to a young church in Thessalonica in Greece, area of Macedonia. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, and then um, chapter 3. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it greatly to our understanding. Amen. Thank you very much, Darren. I'll hold it. Thank you. <laughs> well, good morning once again. You can hear me? That's interesting. I can't hear myself. Well, it's great to be gathered here again and to be able to go through um, what God is saying to us from this word. And um, 
We are continuing, obviously, our series in uh, the Thessalonians. We're going to do 1 Thessalonians and move on to 2 Thessalonians as well. And last week, the primary focus of the passage that we read was concerned with Paul's ministry to the Thessalonian church, the way in which he conducted himself. And uh, there was a couple of different pastors last week, but they all basically covered the same thing. How Paul conducted himself while with the church, how his life reflected the very message that he spoke about, and how he was not a burden to anyone while he was with them in Thessalonica. And he focused primarily on the people and the spiritual needs that they had. That was what Paul was doing. And this morning, we're going to get a glimpse into how the church has managed to operate while Paul and the other apostles have not been with them. Because as you're aware, they were forcefully separated from the church. And Paul is concerned that perhaps they haven't continued to follow Christ as they should. And so Paul, in this section that we're looking at, expresses his heart for the people. And so we can learn how we should be responding towards other people of God, how we should react towards them in their times of difficulty, and also how we as a people of God should respond and react. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So before we get into it, let's just pray. Father God, thank you for your presence. I've prayed that already, and it's no less true right now. I ask, Lord, that by your power, by power of Holy Spirit, you will reveal the truth of your word to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing which I think is pretty obvious when we look at what's going on in this passage of Scripture is Paul's concern. That's what I want to look at first and foremost. He's concerned for the church and, and how that changes what he does and his motivation. So when we look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, 18, it says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. When we read this verse, it's obvious that Paul's got these heartfelt uh, emotions about being separated from the church. He's, he's torn because of the way they were separated. He didn't get to say goodbyes or anything like that. And he's longing to be with them. He's longing to see them face to face. But the word that is used here in the English doesn't give the weight of what Paul is really saying in this passage of Scripture. And what we need to imagine is the feelings of anguish that a mother or father would have when their child, their very young child, is taken from them forcefully against their will. That's the force of the separation that is being spoken about here. And in fact, there's many commentators that say, is Paul depicting himself as the child or is he depicting himself as the parent in this separation? Because there's no question about whether that's what he's talking about. And I believe that Paul is speaking from a parental perspective because he's used similar metaphors all the way through this letter where he is a father to this church, where he is growing them up in the faith. And so there's this anguish where the father has lost his child. They've been cut off from him. And you can imagine as a mother or father, if your child is taken from them before you've been able to have an influence in their life to their teenage years, you don't know what's going to happen to them. You don't know how they're going to grow up. You don't know the influences that are around them that will change them because you're no longer having that influence in their life. And Paul can't do FaceTime. They didn't have the technology. And so Paul's stuck, not knowing what is happening with this church that he dearly loves. And those metaphors, the parental metaphors that Paul uses are chapter 2, 7 and 11. And there's this image of Paul nursing the Thessalonican church. 
He's giving them that milk. He's wanting them to grow. And he, he no doubt wanted to put them onto solids as well, but he didn't get that opportunity. And he lacks the confidence that they'll be able to stand on their own two feet, that they'll be able to oppose the opposition and persecution that they are facing. And so he has this great desire to come to them, to be present with them, to minister to them. And he knows he can pray. He's been doing so fervently. He's been praying earnestly for the church. But there's something about seeing someone face to face. You know those moments I live for is when I'm in a Bible study and someone's not getting what you're saying. And you know it's the truth because it's direct from God's word and you're explaining it to them. And then you see that little flicker. You see that little change in their life and they begin to get it. And then when they finally get it and the joy on their face, when they have revealed to them a revelation by God, something that is new for them, for God's word, there is nothing like that. That is what I live for. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He longs to be in their presence. He longs to sit face to face with them. So all the hardships, all the problems, all the things that they're facing, he can minister to them from God's word. And he can see them getting it. He can see them responding. He can see them changing their lives so that they walk closer with God. And that's his desire in this. That's what he is writing. I want to see you face to face. I want to know that you get it. I want to see you growing in faith. And Paul believes firmly that it is Satan that is trying to snuff out this flame. It is Satan that is preventing him from being present so that he can grow this church. And so he wants the Thessalonians to know, I really want to be with you. This is not my doing. I would be with you. I would never have left. I want to support you. I want to grow you. And he wants to be part of their continued faith. And he sees the Thessalonican church as part of the fruit of what God is doing in Paul's life. He sees them growing and he sees that his life has been worth the sacrifice that he has made because of the Thessalonican church and others like them. It's like his life has counted for something. And it's not about him because Paul always gives the glory back to God. But he thanks God that through him he has seen this growth in this church and in this place and he doesn't want to see it snuffed out. But Paul is really concerned for these new believers. Not because of the forced separation only. But these guys are there with no outside help now. They're standing on their own. All of them, new Christians. And he's concerned that they'll be influenced by the underlying thoughts of religion, by the culture that they are surrounded by. When you think about other religions, if you do the religion right, then good will come to you. Do you understand that? All, all the other religions say, well, if, if you follow this, this, this and this, then you will be blessed and honoured. You know, if something's going wrong, what do you do? Well, sacrifice your child. It's cool. And when you do the right thing, well, then good will come to you. And this is the culture that is surrounding this church. And guess what? They're being persecuted. They're facing opposition. So it will be natural for them because of the culture that they've grown up in to say, you know what, we're getting this wrong. We're not doing things right because surely if we're worshipping the one true God, then everything will be going sweet. How many of us have heard Christians say, when you follow the Lord, everything's going to be rosé? Yeah, 
I can see this frustration in some. Slap them up the side of the head if they ever say that to you. Tell them, tell them Pastor Charlie said you could. I mean, seriously, that is not what Scripture says about our Christian lives. And so when you're a Christian, it's so counter to the world's religions because we are not going to have it rosé. We will have comfort, we will have security within ourselves. We will know a hope for a future with Christ in eternity, but our outward circumstances will not necessarily show that. We are going to face persecution. That's what Scripture says to me. We are going to face opposition. That is what Scripture says to me. And we need to take that on board and realize that's the reality of our Christian lives. And so Paul's got all this going on in his mind, thinking that the church is backslidden. And he's saying, man, this isn't good. I can't be there, but I've got to do something. So Paul is motivated to action. And so Paul has this solution and he responds. So there's a solution and there's action involved. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, when he could bear it no longer, anguish because he's separated from his child, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Now, there's this whole thing going on with the we's and I's in this. We were left all alone. He's actually talking about himself. And there's a whole message that I could give on the we, but we're not going to do that. Okay, so this is Paul basically giving up the only Christian fellowship he has so that he can understand what's going on with the Thessalonian church. Think about his situation. He's in Athens. He's imprisoned. The only Christian fellowship he has is Timothy. And so he's like, he's a man who really values Christian fellowship. He's a man who really values building each other up in the faith. He loves hearing good news stories about, from others. He loves sharing God's word, even if it is only one other. He loves singing hymns and psalms. I mean, he was hanging on a wall in a dungeon and he did it. And he really cherishes that. And he's in a situation where he's got one man who will do that with him. But his concern for the church is so great that he is willing to sacrifice that fellowship that he has in order to send Timothy to make sure that these people are established in the faith. And he understands that encouraging, strengthening and building each other up in the faith is imperative. But he also understands that the Thessalonian church needs it more than he does right at this time. And so he's willing to make the sacrifice. I've got to be honest, I don't think I would. I suppose I'd have to be in that situation, but if that's the only Christian fellowship I had, I, I, would, I would want to hang on to that. I wouldn't want to release it. But he says, no, Timothy has to go. And you know what? It, but he's even concerned that Timothy won't be received. You see, he says, our brother and God's co-worker. He didn't say... Paul's co-worker or co-worker in Christ. He said he was God's co-worker. It's quite an anomaly. And this is how we miss things quite frequently when we just skip over Scripture. But Paul gives Timothy this elevated title. What he's saying is, this is a gifted and qualified representative that I am sending to you. I want you to receive him as such. His word is as good as, if not better than my word. He is following God as he should. He is living the life the way he should. And you can trust what he says. He is God's co-worker. He's God's representative. Receive him as such. But Timothy, Paul has given Timothy some set tasks to do while he's in that church. And it says it right here in 3, 2 and 3. 
to establish and exhort you all in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And Timothy is sent to strengthen and exhort, and exhort is like an encouragement to the Thessalonians in their faith. And again, there's a couple of words here which aren't easily explained as you read that. And when he speaks about strengthening the Thessalonians in their faith, he's speaking about their spiritual condition. He's talking about where they are with Christ. And Paul didn't want them floundering in their faith. There's so many people who come to faith who then doubt their salvation. Have you experienced that? Has anyone doubted their salvation? I have my hand up. Yeah, yeah. It's quite a common thing. And when you're a young Christian, you begin to doubt your salvation. If you've got no one to speak into that situation, those doubts can grow. Can I just encourage you, if you do doubt your faith, doubt your doubts, don't doubt God. I found it works very, very well. And so, this is about their spiritual condition. And we're really talking about whether someone is saved or not. And so, Paul sends Timothy and says, I want you to establish these guys in the salvation that they have claimed. I want you to make sure that they understand they have this rock that they can stand on. They have Holy Spirit dwelling in them. So there is no doubt they have given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are secure in him. Nothing can take that away as far as it depends on God. He will never leave them. He will never desert them. And he's saying establish them in that. Let them understand. And the exhortation that is spoken of here. The exhortation, exhorting them in the faith, is about their attitude, how they live out the faith that they say that they have. This is about the community of God, His church, stretching their lives in a way that shows that they worship the one true God. They're not like the other people in their community who worship a plethora of gods. Their life should be so vastly different that people look upon them and go, you know what? There's something in this. I don't understand it. And when Paul speaks about Timothy exhorting them in the faith, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about them embracing a life that is so counter to those around them that they have to admit there's something going on. It's about submitting all of one's life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's about being obedient to him regardless of what comes. It's about submitting to him everything. It's about obeying his word 100%. It's a word and a life that is so counter to the values of the world back then and even today. And when we think about that life, it's a life that doesn't seek public recognition. It's covered in Matthew 6. It exalts and values servanthood only. It doesn't exalt anything else. The servant will be the greatest of all. And we must be humbled. That's in John 13. It is set against the world and its values. We are to hate the world. Romans 12. And we no longer conform to this world, do we? We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's another thinking. It is not the thinking that the world would have us have. It's the thinking that the Lord puts in our lives. And you know what? None of this can happen unless we are totally submitted and obedient to God and all he says. And at the very heart of this radical command to exhort is another radical thing. And that's the radical love of God. It's a love that says you need to love your neighbours. And some of us like limiting that to the people either side of us because we do love them, that's good. 
But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says your neighbors are everyone. And if there's any doubt, it also says you should love your enemies. I suppose that covers everyone. And that's the type of love that we are supposed to have. It is a love that has absolutely no reason. And it's a love that we must pursue. It's a love that we must desire to have in our lives. It's a love that we can't have. It's a love that Jesus puts into us if we are willing to submit to him. It is his love. And when we think about it, and I want you to think about this, if we don't have a love like that, I don't care if you're a good public teacher. I don't care if you've got the most miraculous spiritual gift that has ever been put upon the face of this earth. I don't care how many people you speak to be about Jesus, Christ, about Jesus Christ. If you do not have love, it is worthless. Whatever else you have. That's what scripture says. You're just a noisy gong. And when you get to glory, you'll find out just how bad your life has been if you haven't had this love. These are the two, reason, uh, two of the reasons that uh, Paul sends Timothy to establish in the new believers. And then he expresses this concern, 1 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And I did touch on this earlier. There's this common belief that if you do religion right, well then everything's going to be rosé, there's not going to be any problems, you know, you'll be skipping along on cloud nine continuously. And there'd be totally positive outcomes. But Paul says that's not the way it's going to be. And Paul's worried for this church that that's what they're thinking because he's told them that they're going to face affliction. He's told them they're going to face conflict. They're going to suffer. And you know what? If they're worshipping God, that's exactly what should happen. But he's concerned that they'll think that they're not worshipping God correctly and so they'll change things because they want to honour God. And so Paul says that they need to remember that Paul, Silas and Timothy had told them that they're going to face afflictions, they're going to face sufferings, they're going to be convicted. And they warned that these things are going to come. And this is a theme that Paul repeats to all new believers. It's inevitable that they will suffer. Paul teaches it. Jesus teaches it. Maybe we should teach it. Maybe we should make you aware that you're going to suffer. And Paul reiterating this means... But he's encouraging them. Don't worry about the fact that you're facing persecution. That's good. You're standing firm upon the word that God has given you. Our faith is not like the other faiths. They don't worship a true God. We are worshipping a true God. And the world is against him. And so we are going to face persecution and opposition. And so he's telling them to stay true to the convictions that they first made. And Paul's final reason for sending Timothy encapsulates all of the above when he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labour would be in vain. And Paul makes this really personal. You know, I spoke about the we previously. Well, he's changed the we to an I here. Paul is aware of the schemes of the evil one to deceive and snatch away the word that has been buried or planted in someone. And he's more concerned now that he's no longer present with this church. He, he isn't able to assure them of the faith that they've committed to. Have they been tempted and have they yielded to these temptations? Instead of offering themselves daily to Christ, are they offering themselves to the God of this world? Allowing or willingly sinning against the clear instructions of God? Paul needs to know. 
He wants to know. And so Timothy is instructed to give him a full report on how strong their faith is. Have they been able to stand with all the opposition they faced and the temptations that have come their way? And so we find then that Paul's concerns are turned to Paul's joy when he gets the report back from Timothy. And it seems that this letter was actually being written or was in, definitely being planned when Timothy arrives back. And so in the middle of this report, we see that Timothy comes back and Paul can't help express the joy of the news that Timothy brings. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 7. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love reported, do you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you? For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And Paul proclaims that Timothy has brought good news. You know what? This is the only place in the New Testament that that is said when it's not referring to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the news that Paul gets is incredible. He is so ecstatic that these guys are following the message of the gospel that they have been giving. They are proclaiming the same message to those around them. And Paul is gushing. He finds his joy totally uncontrollable. And Timothy has brought this incredibly encouraging news about the church. They're continuing in the faith. What if I was bringing you news about a church we'd planted? They're continuing in the faith. One would be happy. Praise God. <laughs> but wouldn't it be exciting to hear they're going on? You know what? They've gone from the 20 people we planted to 50. And those guys are reaching their community. They're in the schools now proclaiming the gospel message to young children through a program they've got there. And it would just go on and on. And we'd get so excited and we'd praise God and thank him for everything. And that's what Paul is doing. And you know what? These guys are even speaking favorably about Paul, Timothy and Silas. He was concerned about that because people had been speaking against them. And these guys are obviously saying, you know what? That doesn't ring true with us. We know these guys and we know what they did with us. We know the way they lived before us and they lived as Christ. They served us. And regardless of what you say, we're going to believe that they have good intentions. And so they look favorably for when Paul is going to return. And we get this sense of relief that Paul felt with this favourable report. Paul commissioned Timothy not only to find out about the church's faith and come back and report about it, but he reports about their faith and love. Do you get that? He said, go and find out how they're doing with their faith. And Timothy comes back and goes, it's not only about their faith, you should see how they love each other. It's incredible. And this love is so great, the community's talking about it. They're responding to it. It's something they haven't seen before. And people look on upon us, don't they? And these guys, in the middle of their hardships, struggles and persecutions, these new Christians chose to love each other. They chose to love their community. They chose to do that, which was very, very difficult. And they're having an impact as a result. And Timothy, as I said, also reports that they're thinking very positively about Paul, Timothy and Silas. Think about that. Paul and the other guys had left very, very suddenly, possibly even overnight. There'd be people that they would have longed to have said goodbye to who they were very close to. And there would have been others that they would have wanted to as well who were part of that congregation. They didn't even get to say farewell. They were forced to leave very, very quickly. Who's had that happen? Why did they leave? Why, why didn't they say goodbye? And we don't always think bad things about them, but sometimes that creeps in. So Paul's sitting back there going, do, do, do they even look favorably upon me anymore? I, I didn't say goodbye to them. I didn't even give them a blessing. I didn't get to pray for them. And I, I'm their spiritual father. I should have done that. I didn't have that opportunity. I really hope that 
they're still okay with me? I don't know what he's thinking, but it could be those types of things. But this comment that they speak kindly about them and would welcome their visits again puts all of those concerns aside in Paul's mind. The church understood. They knew he had a good reason to go and they don't hold it against him. And Paul goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 3a, Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. We have a similar saying. Oh, I can breathe again. Anyone said something like that? You know, and, and, and that's what Paul is saying here. Now that he knows that the church is continuing in their faith and they're standing on the opposition that they're facing, he can breathe again. Oh, Lord, I can live. This is a great thing. This is brilliant. His life is so caught up with these new Christians. He wants to see them succeed in their faith. He wants to see them achieve great things for God. And his relief is not just about his anxiety about the church's faith. Paul is rejoicing because their faith is advancing. They are doing great things, even without the guidance of the apostles. They are standing firm upon the promises that they have heard. And these are the things that revitalizes and recharges Paul. And I've got to tell you, it's what revitalizes and recharges pastors. I so desperately need to hear good news stories. And I so often ask people, tell me a good news story about God. What's he doing in your life? And it's those things we long to hear. He wants to hear those good news stories. He wants to hear what's happening in their lives. Paul also wants to continue to rejoice like this. But it's only going to happen if you are standing fast in the Lord. That's the only way you can continue to rejoice. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep following and pursuing Christ. The, his continued rejoicing is as a result of them continuing to walk in the ways of the Lord. And Paul's personal health and well-being seem to be caught up in the health and well-being of this church. They're advancing if they are standing firm. If they are showing Christ-like love to those around them, then he's living. And it's not just a ho-hum type of life. He is that guy skipping on cloud nine because these guys are doing exactly what they should be doing and he's rejoicing in the midst of that. And Paul is so overjoyed, he responds in the only way he can. He prays. 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 to 13 says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord. And Paul prays that God will honour his desire to be with the Thessalonians again. He wants God to honour him returning to minister to them. He wants to share in their joy. He wants to encourage them in the word. And with the sharing of stories about God's goodness, he wants to see the Thessalonians increase and abound in love for each other. And then for everyone else, not just those in the church. And Paul's prayer is that these people will become a people who are known for their love. He says that their love is to abound for one another and then for all. And the purpose of this is that the Thessalonians will be so firmly established in their newfound faith that upon Jesus' return, they will be found fully acceptable by him. Now some of you may be saying, well, when we give our lives to Jesus... Our justification, that first step when we accept him as our Lord and Saviour, it's true for all of us. But there's two words here which make a very interesting point. 
The translated blameless is pretty straightforward. And that is speaking about when we make that commitment to Christ. When we come before him and say, yes, Lord, I admit that I am wrong. I confess my sin before you and I accept you as my Lord and Saviour. That's the justification that we speak about. And so we are back in right relationship with him. But then it goes further than that. The second word, which is translated holiness, is all about our sanctification. This is the each and every moment of each and every day, setting ourselves apart for the purposes of God and not for our own profit and gain. This is our sanctification. It's about saying, Lord, here I am. Use me for your glory in Jesus' name. And Paul is praying that the Thessalonians will continue in faith. They'll continue to grow each and every day in commitment and walk with Jesus. That's sanctification. So when Jesus returns, they'll be found serving him. There won't be any question. They'll be continuing to do what they've already done. Quite a bit contained in one little passage of scripture, hey? And I only brush the surface. Go home, dig into it. But what's that mean for us? I've just got a whole series of questions and I want you to think about these questions in relation to your life. What are your concerns regarding Sunnybank District Baptist Church? Which is God's church, whether you like it or not? What actions, sacrifices... Are you willing to make just like Paul made in order to play a role in being part of the solution and not part of the problem? That means don't gossip about what you have seen. That means being on your knees before God because the thing that he has laid on your heart, there's a very good chance he's calling you to be part of the change. You need to do it, not someone else. So you don't need to talk to anyone else about it. Be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Does your life as part of this church, this body of believers, reflect Jesus and your submission to him and his authority? As we heard from this passage of scripture, are you humble and not seeking recognition for what you've done, what you plan to do? Are you just here to serve as God calls us to? Do you have a true servant heart and attitude towards your fellow man? Do you give without expecting anything back? Is your life so counter to the world's values that you stand out as a believer? Have you made a declaration of Christ's lordship over every part of your life and committed the rest of your life to being one of total obedience to all that God calls you to? Are you committed to loving others? Yes, your friends, your neighbours... What about your work and study colleagues? What about your enemies? That's what Jesus Christ calls us to. And if we are going to be a people who are set apart and seen as different, we need to do it. We need to be obedient to him and his call. Are you willing to accept that in being committed to Jesus, you are acknowledging that if you are obedient to him, you'll have more than your fair share of afflictions and opposition? And with this in mind, do you declare to the Lord that come what may, you'll stand for him and his truth without compromise, regardless of the opposition that you will face? Will you commit to be a person who will continue to tell the good news of God's goodness in your life, to encourage and strengthen 
your brothers and sisters in Christ? Will you make this the focus of your conversations in order to show that God is alive and moving in your life? Will you value the meeting together with your brothers and sisters so much that when it doesn't happen and you aren't able to share God's word or hear the stories of all God is doing in people's lives, that like Paul, you feel you're not living at all. You feel that you're suffering and you so desperately need to hear those good news stories. Paul prayed for and longed for those face-to-face meetings with the faithful so they could be mutually encouraging and building each other up in the faith. Is that what you truly long and pray for? Is that the heart of your faith? Does your interaction with fellow believers reflect this? This is the heart of a true believer. Just like Paul, we would want to see an increase and overflow of love for each other and for all men. This is what we as people of God should desire. This is what we should be striving towards. Will you commit to pray for the good of those around you? It needs to be a commitment of every believer sitting here today. Our heart should be to build each other up and to strengthen each other in the faith. Specific prayers, not general prayers. Prayers that are passionately prayed with heartfelt desire to see each person increase in faith and love for one another. Big call, isn't it? There's a lot contained in what I've just said. And I know there's some of you sitting there saying, that's way too much. Take it up with God, because that's what that passage of Scripture says. If I've said anything that is not in that word, let me know. Because I believe everything I've said is contained there. And if we're obedient to God, if we're following him, we must do it. There's no choice. It's what we're called to do. And so on that day, when Jesus returns... We'll be blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord. I'm going to pray. And guys, I know I've asked you to come forward for prayer. It's the same request. You can fool me, you can fool those around you. You can't fool God. If he's calling you to commit to some of what you've heard this morning, I ask you to come forward and we pray together. Just like Paul celebrated, I will too. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the strength and the power of your word. I thank you for how challenging and convicting it is. And Lord, it's a word that has convicted me. And Lord, there's so much contained in that passage of scripture that we've read. And it's hard to get our heads around that, Lord. But I pray for each and every person that is sitting here now, that you, by power of Holy Spirit, will just touch their lives exactly in the spot where you need to. Where, Lord, you will challenge them to respond to you. And Father, if that requires them to respond by coming forward, I just ask that you give them the guts to do that. Lord, we want to see lives changed. I don't, I don't believe you've put me in this place at this time just to bump my gums for no result. And I, like Paul, want to see people grown in the faith. I want to see people reaching out in love to those around them. I want to see us as a people of God, able to draw people into your kingdom, not because of the great ministries we have, not because of the great miraculous things that happen here, but because we love them with the love that Christ has loved them. And when they come to this place, they see that we love each other in the same way. Father, will you humble us? So many of us need to be broken. So many of us are boastful and prideful. I want to see that change, Lord. 
Give us hearts for you. Let us desire you and your purposes alone in our lives. And let us pursue you with all of our hearts and all of our lives. That we may stand in your presence and not only hear what I've said this morning, but also hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's in your hands, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.